Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, December 30th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before I begin tonight, I would like to simply announce that there will be a major update this weekend to the Christagenia Forum. The forum is... um. Over seven years old, and, and it's long past due for, for an overhaul. It's already done, except that we have to copy over some more posts, and we're going to leave the old forum intact on its original address, on its original URL. It will be um, made read-only on Saturday night, going into Sunday morning sometime. And it'll remain intact for some months until I do all the redirecting I need. But that won't affect anything but Google searches, so that's not a big problem. The new forum will have much greater capability, more um, networking and and social media capability. It'll be more community-oriented. There will be features like blogs and things like that for senior or veteran members of the Christagenia Forum, those who have established themselves as being trustworthy Christians in our community. The um, registration will eventually be opened to the public rather than being by invitation only. I will make an announcement when that is going to happen. It'll probably be in two or three weeks after we make sure that All of the kinks are ironed out. And with that, we are going to present part 15 of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. And this is subtitled, Sons or Bastards. Imagine that. There are too many, far too many people in Christian identity who are accepting of bastards. Those people are lukewarm, and Yahshua Christ will spew you from his mouth when the day comes. I guarantee it. As we have proceeded through Hebrews chapter 11, we have sought to understand Paul's reasoning in his descriptions of the faith of the patriarchs from a historical perspective that the Old Testament accounts describing the lives of the patriarchs and saints exhibit that their faith was a Christian faith long before the advent of Christ himself. In that respect, the Old Testament saints were Christians before the time of Christ, and they were never Jews. Paul spoke in this same regard in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he was describing how it was that the ritual elements and ceremonies of the law were being left unemployed in Christ, and speaking of those who were disobedient in the past, he said that yet their minds were hardened, even to this day the same veil remains upon the reading of the Old Covenant, which not being uncovered is left unemployed in Christ. Then until this day, whenever Moses is read, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies upon their hearts. But when perhaps you should turn to the prince, the veil is taken away. So, according to Paul of Tarsus, the Old Testament scriptures 
are only for Christians. Their significance is only revealed to those who accept Christ, and therefore nobody else has any authority to even comment upon them. We have also sought to clarify some obscure details of Scripture, while elucidating the historicity of the accounts themselves. Here, as we approach the close of Paul's famous discourse on the faith, we shall continue in that same endeavor. The historicity of the Old Testament is constantly being attacked by critics of modern denominational Christianity, and especially by critics of the Jews, as well as by Jews themselves. And yes, the Jews are prominent in what is called the school of biblical minimalists, who actually seek to reduce the Bible to a bunch of myths recorded in the 4th or 5th century BC, which is which absolutely flies in the face of archaeological reality. What those critics do not realize, those who attack the historicity of the Old Testament, what they do not realize is that the denominational churches have never actually taught Christianity. The Jews, as we have just explained, can never possibly understand it. And the Jews are neither the subjects nor the true heirs of the Old Testament scriptures. First century Christians themselves insisted that these so-called Gentiles, the people of the nations of the Greco-Roman Oikumene, they were indeed the true heirs and subjects of the scriptures. They who had been alienated from Yahweh God many centuries before Christ. Those Christians also attested that the Jews are Edomites, not Israelites. And historians such as Flavius Josephus and Strabo of Cappadocia fully support that attestation. The scriptures themselves in both Old Testament and New also support all of these assertions. Furthermore, discussing Paul's description of Moses and the events of the Exodus, we elucidated the fact that five ancient historians, four of them pagans, had accepted the accounts of Moses and the Exodus as being historical in nature. Three of these are Flavius Josephus, a Judean, and the pagan Greek writer Strabo of Cappadocia and Diodorus Siculus, both of whom wrote before the time of Christ. None of these witnesses were Christians. Strabo the geographer was a pagan Greek. Theodore Siculus was a pagan Greek. None of them, not even Joseph, Josephus, were what we may fairly consider to be Jewish. Josephus was a Judean. He wasn't necessarily a Jew. Then, from Josephus, we saw that a pagan Egyptian writer of the 3rd century named Manetho, also accepted Moses and the Exodus account as being historical, and correctly dated it to the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty. That's the 3rd century BC, that's 300 years before Christ. Finally, through Diodorus Siculus, we saw that another pagan Greek writer in, e in Egypt, named Hecatahius of Abdera, 
had also accepted the accounts of Moses and the Exodus as being historical, and he wrote in the 4th century B.C. Although the version of the Exodus account given by Hecatahius was more accommodating to the Egyptians, now we can say that so was the version given by Manetho, which is something that Josephus had overlooked, betraying his own bias. Since our previous presentation in a series, given here just last week, we have acquired a copy of the Loeb Classical Library volume of the Fragments of Manetho, which was first published in 1940. While most of all of Manetho's work, his original work, is now lost, <coughs> the fragments of his writing which survive show that other ancient writers had also cited him regarding his accounts of the Exodus. One of those is Theophilus of Antioch a Christian of the late 2nd century A.D., in an apologetic work entitled Apology to Autolycus. And he had cited Manetho and wrote that Moses was the leader of the Judeans, using the Greek word found in all of the Hellenistic writings, because Manetho was an Egyptian, but he wrote in Greek. Moses was the leader of the Judeans, as I have already said when they had been expelled from Egypt by King Pharaoh, whose name was Tethmosis. After the expulsion of the people, this king, it is said, reigned for twenty-five years and four months, according to Manetho's reckoning. So we see in this two things which Josephus did not provide for us in his own citations of Manetho. <coughs> First, that Manetho's version of the Exodus account had the same perspective favorable to the Egyptians, which we had seen in the account given by Hecatahius of Abdera that was cited by Diodorus Siculus. And secondly, and just as importantly, the account of the number of years in the reign of Tuthmos corroborates our assertion that Manetho must have referred to Tuthmos III, the only pharaoh with the name who reigned for so long a time. By the popular accounts, Tuthmos III ruled Egypt for nearly 55 years until 1425 B.C. So, where Manetho informs us that Tuthmos lived 25 years after the Exodus, our chronology to period and our approximate dating of the event to 1450 B.C. are once again fully vindicated, as we asserted last week. Discussing Hebrews chapter 11, in our last presentation of this epistle, we had ended with verse 32, where Paul had written in conclusion to his list of Old Testament saints. And what more do I say? For the time will fail me relating about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, or Jephthah, and David and Samuel, and of the prophets. And before we conclude Paul's statement concerning these men, we will comment on a few of them, although we <laughs> will not speak of them all. The record concerning Gideon is plain. And as Paul himself wrote here, the time would fail us to speak of David and Samuel. We do have a few things to say about these others, 
things which are obscure or often overlooked. Barak was indeed a man of faith, but no man is above criticism, not even men in the Bible. Many students of scripture seem to overlook the fact that Barak was also a feminist and was punished for that, and this is absolutely relevant to our situation as a race today. When one seeks to persuade modern women that their places with the husband and the raising of a family, a very important position indeed, it is often argued that there are many women who have successfully fulfilled capacities which are usually occupied by men. In this regard, we may hear of a Deborah the Prophet, whom we're about to discuss. We may hear of a Joan of Arc, or a Boudicca, or a Cartamandua, or an Isabella of Castile. But the exception should not be the rule, and men cannot voluntarily abrogate their responsibilities to women. Barak had done just that very thing, and for it, he suffered the consequences. So we read in Judges chapter 4, where it is apparent that there is already a problem among the men of Israel, simply because a woman was set to judge. That should be the first indication of a problem. Not to disparage the women, that's a disgrace not to the women, but to the men. And we read, And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Has not Yahweh God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. Deborah, being recognized as a prophetess, which was indeed a role that women could fulfill, even in the New Testament, Barak had the faith to know that he should not decline her demands, and that is fine. But he did it with condition. While he should have been happy to comply, and it was his role to lead this army against the Canaanites, it is nevertheless recorded. <clears throat> and Barak said unto her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. That's sort of like, I'm not going to do it without my mommy. So here we see that rather than assuming the responsibility he was given for himself, Barak wanted Deborah to go with him, thereby putting a woman in harm's way on the field of battle. It is no wonder that a woman was set to judge in Israel at this time if this was the attitude of the men. So Deborah responded, and she said, I will surely go with thee. Notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for Yahweh shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. 
And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And he went up with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went with him. The legacy which every heroic warrior desires is to vanquish his enemies for himself. But because Barak had insisted that Deborah, the woman, go with him, he would be punished for it, so that a woman would get the glory that should have been his. Therefore, Sisera, the enemy general, was killed by a woman, Jael, the wife of a man called Heber the Kenite. When Sisera fled to the tent of Heber seeking refuge, Jael, his wife, took a hammer and nail and slew Sisera. This deprived Barak of the glory which he himself should have had, if he were not such a feminist. This compels us to discuss one more aspect of the scripture, which is poorly understood. Moses married the daughter of a priest of Midian, However, here, one of the descendants of Moses' father-in-law is called a Kenite. This leads many fools to assume that Moses' wife was a Kenite by race, and therefore that God condones race mixing with the descendants of Cain. Nothing is further from the truth. Moses' father-in-law was a Midianite by race, of the descendants of Abraham and his third wife, Keturah. And we can compare Genesis chapter 25 with Exodus chapter 2. The word Kenite can refer to the race of the descendants of Cain, as it often does. But the word can also refer to someone who is a smith by occupation. J.L. was a woman who clearly had experience with a hammer and nail, and had a hammer and nail within easy reach. This also reveals that her husband was a smith by trade, not a Kenite by race. In the ancient world, women typically helped their husbands at their trade, so J.L. knew exactly what she was doing with that hammer when she nailed Sisera. Jephthah, or Jephthah in the King James Version, was chosen by Yahweh to free the children of Israel in Gilead from the oppression of the Ammonites. And he did, in spite of the fact that his brethren had at one time cast him out because he was born of his father to a, another woman who apparently may have been a prostitute. Being delivered by such a man, that too is a message from Yahweh revealing for us the sinful nature of Israel at this time, that they deserve no better. Before he met the Ammonites in battle, it is recorded in Judges chapter 11, And Jephthah vowed a vow unto Yahweh, and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatsoever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. However, the words burnt offering in that passage are from a Hebrew word 
which has various uses and really means only a going up or an ascent, even a stairway. Although the Septuagint translators interpreted it to mean a burnt offering, that is not necessarily so since the word has other uses and that meaning is only implied in the context. The context would be fitting if an animal were involved, but we cannot force the meaning otherwise. And the word appears in many different contexts in Scripture. So after Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites, we read, And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. And she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass, when he saw her, that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto Yahweh, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto Yahweh, do unto me according to that which had proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as Yahweh has taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. So we see the daughter actually had great faith, and so did Jephthah. But he would not take back his words. He said them, so he had to keep them. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. We're not told that Jephthah related everything to her. We only... the. The text only skips ahead to her reply of what Jephthah had vowed. It doesn't repeat the vow. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains, and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows, or her friends, of course. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions, and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father. Who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man. That's important. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. Jephthah's daughter never sought to lament her life, but only her virginity. If she were going to die, it would be unlikely that Jephthah would so easily allow her to go off into the mountains for two months with her friends and expect her to return. And when she returned, it does not say anything about her being slaughtered in sacrifice, but only that she knew no man. Here is one example where the concise nature of the scriptures and the lack of a complete cultural context cause a division of opinions which are difficult to reconcile. It is highly unlikely from the language here that Jephthah's daughter was to be put to death, it is much more likely that she was dedicated to the service of Yahweh, to the service of the community, 
perhaps to the Levites in the tabernacle. And therefore she never married, being required to remain in perpetual virginity. So she knew no man after she returned from her lamentation over her virginity. Among the ancient pagan nations, this was a common practice. It is manifest in the Greek Pythia, which was the virgin priestess of Apollo, or in the later Roman Vestal Virgins. There are interests which, rumor has it, weren't always virgins, but they were supposed to be. There are interesting parallels to the story in Greek literature, especially involving the sacrifice of Iphigenia by Agamemnon before the siege of Troy, where she was supposedly snatched up by the goddesses right from the altar and whisked off to a temple far away to serve the goddess. Of course, the Greeks had to get that story from somewhere. In any event, Paul accounted Jephthah as a man of faith who predicated his actions on his faith, and certainly not as a child killer. The daughter certainly seemed to have at least as much faith as her father. And as for Samson, and the purpose why we are mentioning all of this will become manifest a little later in this presentation, as for Samson, it must be observed that he married a Philistine woman. The Philistines, according to Moses in Genesis chapter 10, were descended from Mitzraim, the son of Ham, and ostensibly they were Adamic, related to the Israelites by race. While the children of Israel were commanded to keep separate from the uncircumcised, the distinction between Israelite and Philistine was religious and not racial. So while Samson evidently forsook his religious vows by marrying the foreign woman, he was not committing fornication. We can contrast Paul's mention of Samson without criticism to his mention of Esau as a profane man and a fornicator later in this very chapter. Esau's wives were Hittites. Ostensibly, the Hittites had become mixed with the other races, the Rephaim, the Canaanites, the Kenites. And therefore, Esau lost his birthright, since his progeny are condemned. The prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 9, indicates that many centuries after Samson, there were still Philistines dwelling at Ashdod who were not bastards. As for Samson, in spite of his errors... He evidently had great faith, he predicated his actions on that faith, and in the end, he overcame his pagan adversaries. Because of the faith that these men had and acted upon, Paul writes of them, who by faith prevailed against kingdoms, accomplished justice, attained to promises, stopped up the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edges of the sword, were strengthened from weakness, became strong in war, made the encampments of aliens give way. There's a serious difference in verse 33 in Papyrus P46, which says that by faith 
kings accomplish justice. And the reading is unlikely since all of these men mentioned by Paul, out of all of these men mentioned by Paul, only David was a king. The phrase stomata makahires is literally mouths, mouths, plural, of a sword, singular. The Greeks used the word mouth in reference to weapons of the point of the weapon. So it would be the edge of a sword. The word mouth was used often to describe the foremost part, the face or the front of something. (coughs) By faith, the patriarchs made the encampments of aliens give way. And this phrase, this saying, is just as relative to Paul in the Christian era as it would be in the period of the Old Testament patriarchs of which he speaks. The King James Version has turned to flight the armies of the aliens, which is also proper. As Joshua Christ had said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And one purpose of the Messiah, as it is expressed in Luke chapter 1, by Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, is to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So that faith by which the Old Testament saints had made the encampments of the aliens give way or turn to flight the armies of the aliens is just as necessary in the New Testament where we pray that our God delivers us from the hand of our enemies who are also his enemies according to the father of John the Baptist. The children of Israel still have enemies in the world and are still awaiting deliverance from those enemies, which is the ultimate promise of Christ in his revelation, as well as in the Old Testament prophets. While from the Old Testament period to the New, it is evident that the historical names of the sheep and the enemies may have changed, nowhere is it evident that the nature and identity of the sheep and the enemies have changed as we shall see later on in chapter 12 of this epistle. But as we have already said, the denominational churches have never taught true Christianity. Continuing with verse 35, Women received their dead from resurrection, but others had been cudgeled to death, not accepting redemption, that they would obtain a better resurrection. And this is an important verse which we will discuss at length. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we see that Elijah the prophet was sent to the woman of Zarephath, 
who for her faith in feeding the prophet did not suffer from the famine which had stricken the land. Then we read from verse 17 of the chapter, And it came to pass after these things, meaning after the famine was past, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto Yahweh and said, O Yahweh my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the house of the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son. And he stretched himself upon the child three times, and cried unto Yahweh, and said, Yahweh my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again, meaning his life. And Yahweh heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of Yahweh in thy mouth is truth. And of course the woman should have known that simply because during the famine, the, the barrel of meal and the container of oil did not give way, did not fail. She always had something to eat. There's another account of such a resurrection in 2 Kings chapter 4 involving the prophet Elisha, which we won't repeat here. So women received their dead from resurrection in the Old Testament as well. There is a nuance to Paul's language here, which reveals something that we cannot overlook. This nuance is even perfectly evident in the King James Version, where this verse reads, Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, where we have cudgeled to death. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. We have often asserted, teaching from scriptures such as Isaiah 45.25 and Romans 11.26, that all Israel shall be saved. And while we have many other scriptures to support our position, we are despised by many of our own Christian identity brethren for this teaching. They should all be ashamed of themselves, and we are confident that one day they will all be ashamed, if indeed they are brethren in the first place. Many Judaized Christians, even among those who call themselves identity Christians, insist that one cannot be saved unless he professes to believe in Jesus, or repents of his sins during his or her own lifetime, or even performs some work in addition to those things. That belief, or any one of them, is absolutely contrary to many passages of Scripture. 
Here in this passage, Paul says that because of their faith, certain women saw their own children brought back from the dead. But others died, as the King James has it, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Paul does not indicate that they will not be resurrected because of their lack of faith, but only that their resurrection will not be as good as the resurrection of those who have faith. There are other witnesses to this. One is found in Daniel chapter 12, where it says, And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So evidently, rejecting the faith here on earth, one is punished in this world, and may be resurrected to everlasting contempt, not receiving the better resurrection of which Paul speaks. However, the phrase everlasting contempt nevertheless indicates eternal life, otherwise the contempt would not be everlasting. Another witness is found in Paul's own writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we will read from verse 11. For another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, stay, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, meaning that you've only built wood, hay, and stubble atop the foundation by, with which you were provided, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire, meaning that he will suffer trials, but he himself shall be saved, even if you have no works at the end of this life which are worthwhile preserving no works which can be spoken of as gold silver or precious stones so once again denying the faith in christ leads to an absence of good works in the life of man but even with no good works the man himself is still preserved Ostensibly, being saved and having no reward, one has failed to receive the better resurrection which Paul mentions here. And that must also be the everlasting contempt described by Daniel, having faith, also predicating the necessity to have good works. It may be fitting to briefly discuss Romans chapter 11, where Paul says from verse 26, and so, all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they, meaning those 
of Israel who had not accepted Christ are enemies to your sakes, but as touching the election, because they are Israelites, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, meaning that Yahweh said he would take away all their sins, and he can't take back his words. For as ye in past times have not believed God, yet now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. So don't tell me you have to believe to be saved or to acquire the mercy of God. All you have to be is one of those Israelites to whom that mercy was promised without condition. In Romans chapter 9, we learn that Paul is not talking about Jews here, but rather he is talking about the true Israelites left in Judea, who were under the rule of the Edomite Jews. Even if they did not believe in Jesus during their lifetime, Yahweh God would still have mercy on them. Paul explained why all Israel is assured salvation in Romans 11.29, where he said, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Reading the Old Testament prophets, Yahweh promised to justify all the seed of Israel in Isaiah 45. Yahweh promised to cleanse all the sins, <clears throat> all of the transgressions of Israel, in Jeremiah 31:34, in Ezekiel 37:23, in Micah 7:19. In the closing verses of the prophecy of Micah, we read from verse 18, "Who is like God unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy." He will turn again, and he will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob, and mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So it may not be for our sakes that all of Israel is saved, but it certainly is for the sake of the words which Yahweh spoke unto our fathers, so that he keeps his promises. In Isaiah chapter 28, the sins of Israel are described, and it is said that departing from Yahweh, they made a covenant with death and were in agreement with hell. Then, in response, the word of Yahweh said unto them that your covenant with death shall be disannulled. And your agreement with hell shall not stand. They could not lose their salvation even though they wanted to. Because the promises to the fathers will certainly be kept. There are many other passages of scripture which support our interpretation in Romans chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 15, and in Peter chapters 3 and 4. 
We have discussed them all in the past, and we shall discuss them more in the future. Those who deny these things are denying these scriptures, and they are no better than Jews, teaching that men are saved only by the works of their own hands or the profession of their own lips. I'm so tired of Judeo identity. And Paul continues in verse 36, And others receive trials of mockings and scourgings, then further of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were cut in pieces, having died by slaughter of the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being in want, being afflicted, being mistreated, of whom the society was not worthy, wandering upon deserts and mountains, and in caves, and in holes of the earth. At the beginning of verse 37, the codices Sinaiticus and O48 have, they were stoned, they were tested, they were cut in pieces, where we have only, they were stoned, they were cut in pieces. The Codex Claromontanus has, they were stoned, they were tested, they were tested. An obvious error caused by the confusion of two similarly spelled words written consecutively. I'm sorry, I'm choking. (coughs) Epirostasan, or they were tested, and epirostasan, or epristasan, meaning that they were cut in pieces. Other manuscripts have the same three phrases. They were stoned, they were tested, they were cut in pieces in a different order. And those are the 3rd century papyri P13, the Codex Alexandrinus, I'm sorry, yes, the Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text. We chose to follow the 3rd century papyrus P46, Here we see a reference to the persecution, and I mention all that simply because some of the verses, many verses are remarkably consistent. Some of the verses in Scripture have remarkable differences. They don't really add up to anything, but it's interesting to note them because most often it's simply scribal confusion or scribal error. Here we see a reference to the persecution of the prophets of Yahweh and how they have always been castaways from society, despised and forced to live as outsiders even in ancient Israel. The majority of our people have always loved the world. While few of the trials of the prophets are actually recorded in scripture, the foremost being the imprisonment of Jeremiah, and then the trials of Daniel, first in the flames and then in the lion's den, we do have a record of the imprisonment of Micaiah in 1 Kings chapter 22, where Ahab is king of Israel. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, There is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of Yahweh. But I hate him. These are the words of king Ahab. For he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. 
And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither, Micaiah the son of Imlah. When Micaiah did indeed give Ahab warning, as he was brought to the king, that he would fall on a battlefield, it is then recorded that thus saith the king, Put this fellow into prison, and feed him with the bread of affliction, and with water of affliction, until I come in peace. So Micaiah told Ahab he was going to fall on a battlefield, and Ahab didn't like that, and put him in prison. Soon after, Ahab died in battle. But there is no further mention of the prophet. It is obvious from scripture, and from the world around us today, that those who uphold the truth concerning the word of Yahweh are the most despised, even among his own people. And Paul continues in verse 39. And all these being, I'm sorry, the Codex Sinaiticus interpolates that word, these. And all being accredited through the faith, have not acquired the promise of Yahweh, foreseeing for us something better, that not apart from us, they should be perfected. This passage indicates to us that Paul's view of the acquiring of the promise is quite different than the view of most denominational Christians today. Since he indicates that the Old Testament saints were perfected even though they died before the advent of the Christ, not without us ostensibly referring to those of Paul's own time. However, Paul accounts his readers as having received the promises simply because Christ had come, and not necessarily because his readers had already accepted the gospel. The entire purpose of this epistle to the Hebrews is to convince his readers that they should receive the gospel. So the Old Testament saints are equally perfected with those under the New Covenant, whether or not in this earthly life they had ever heard the gospel. But in spite of that equality, Christians who accept Christ have something better than that which was had by the Old Testament saints. As we had explained when we began our presentation of Hebrews chapter 11 several weeks ago, these Old Testament saints whom Paul is about to describe had acted in faith, not receiving the promises, but having seen them from afar. And the reference is to the assurance of the promises they had in Christ. Once again, Paul speaks to these Hebrews as if they had already received the promises of God. Not that Christ is the promise, but that seeing the advent of the promised Messiah, they have now seen the assurance of the promise. As Paul had written in Romans chapter 15, that Christ came to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And with this we will commence with Hebrews chapter 12. So therefore, we also having so great a cloud of witnesses lying around us, laying aside every pretension and easily attention-getting error, with endurance should run the race lying before us. That cloud of witnesses lying around us being a reference to the Old Testament saints, lying around us sort of 
seemingly being allegorical for the records of the scriptures. The King James Version has this verse to read in part, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And while that admonition may indeed be wholesome, we think Paul's meaning is a little stronger. According to Liddell and Scott, the Greek word ankus is bulk, size, mass, or even a heap, and metaphorically it means weight in the sense of trouble, or weight in the sense of importance, dignity, pride, and in a bad sense, self-importance or pretension. Therefore, it is pretension here in this context in the Christogenian New Testament. The accompanying word and adjective, eupheristatus, is easily besetting in the King James Version, which Liddell and Scott follow in their own definition since the word is not found in earlier Greek writings. In his own Greek-English lexicon, Joseph Thayer adds the definitions skillfully surrounding or well or much admired. But for a related word, peristatus, simply without the prefix you, which means well or good or easy, peristatus, which was used by Isocrates, Liddell and Scott have surrounded and admired by the crowd. That's what they define peristatus to mean. This word is eupheristatus. Easily admired by the crowd. It was used, peristatus, by the Greek historian Theopompus of Chios to mean standing around and wondering. It was from the use of peristatus by Isocrates that Joseph Thayer admitted arriving at his own definition of much admired for this word, eupheristatus, here in Hebrews. For another related word, peristasis, Liddell and Scott have a standing around, a crowd standing around. And therefore, with all of these things being considered, here we have translated eupheristatus as easily attention-getting, which in context fits quite well with pretension. I'll give you one example of that. One example of exactly what Paul's talking about, the pretense and the easily attention-getting errors that we should lay aside is when the scripture says that all Israel shall be saved, and when some pudgy little rabbi from Chicago stands up and says, oh, not all Israel's going to be saved, and he easily gets everybody's attention. And with pretense, he's denying the scripture, because he's really a Jew and not a Christian at all. That's one easily attention-getting error that Christians should lay aside and do so immediately. Of course they won't, because they love the world. They'd rather have their little niggers than their Christian brethren. They'd rather keep their little bastards and see their Christian brethren go down into the fire. And we're confronted with that daily. Pretension, 
The use of affectation to impress, ostentatiousness. By these things are people often deceived with fine speeches, masking treacherous agendas. Easily attention-getting errors, the wicked things which are said to fascinate or to shock people, to excite them in order to obtain a certain reaction. These tools the enemies of Christ have often used against his people in order to subvert a Christian society. They still conduct themselves in that same way, constantly pushing the envelope which contains what is considered normal or acceptable closer and closer to the threshold of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Christian should disregard all of these things and seek to walk in Christ. But more than that, Paul sought to encourage Hebrews to his cause, to run the race with him, to bring the gospel to the nations in order to reconcile the scattered children of Israel to Yahweh their God. For that reason he had admonished them in chapter 5 of this epistle, where he told them, For when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers... Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. So Paul is encouraging these Hebrews, men who should know the law and the prophets, to endeavor to become teachers of the gospel, thereby running the race. And, as he continues in verse 2 of chapter 12, looking to Yahshua, the founder and completer of the faith, who for the sake of the joy lying before him endured the cross, having despised shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of Yahweh. We must amend a small portion of our commentary on Hebrews chapter 10. This is now the fifth and final time in this epistle that Paul has cited the opening verse of the 110th Psalm in relation to Christ. Here the King James Version has author and finisher of the faith, which is fine, but we do not think finisher is a good choice of words today. Other translations more appropriately have perfecter. Once again, if the Old Testament saints were Christian, as Paul would insist, and if Yahshua Christ is the founder of the faith which they shared, then he must be one and the same with Yahweh the Father. As Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking of the exodus from Egypt and the forefathers of the children of Israel, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The Old Testament saints were Christians before Christ, because Christ is indeed that Old Testament God, now incarnate as a man, the firstborn among many brethren, as Paul had referred to him in Romans chapter 8. And if you deny that, you're, you are in essence denying Christ and those same circus clowns which insist that not all Israel will be saved also insist that Christ is a separate person or personality from God the Father. Christ is Yahweh. He's just 
a human incarnation of Yahweh. As Paul called him in Colossians, the fullness of the divinity bodily. Yahshua Christ despised shame for the sake of the greater glory of God. Paul had quantified the faith of Moses in that same manner, where he said that Moses refused to be called the son of the daughter of Pharaoh, rather preferring to be mistreated with the people of Yahweh than to have the temporary rewards of error, having esteemed the reproach of the anointed, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, since he had regard for the reward. In verse 3, Paul continues to speak of Christ, and he says, Consider he who has endured such great controversy from wrongdoers or sinners in regard to himself, that you not be wearied your soul's giving way. And rather than that phrase, controversy from sinners in regard to himself, the oldest papyri have controversy from wrongdoers for them, evidently referring to the previously mentioned great cloud of witnesses. These same papyri had the final clause of the verse to read, that you not be wearied, souls that have failed themselves. Other manuscripts have controversy from wrongdoers for themselves. That really makes no sense at all to me. The text follows the majority text with which the King James agrees, and the Codex Alexandrinus. And Paul continues, Not yet have you resisted as far as blood, struggling against wrongdoing, or struggling against sin. And you have utterly forgotten the exhortation which with you as sons he converses. My son, do not esteem lightly the discipline of Yahweh, nor faint being censured by him. For whom Yahweh loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Here Paul admonishes these Hebrews rather strongly, attesting to them that with all of the sin in their society, they have not fought against it in order to uphold the laws of God. This should painfully remind them of their humbled state under both the oppression of the Edomites and the pagan administration of Rome. But it should also indicate to them that obedience to Christ is the way by which they would escape their disgrace. The exhortation Paul quotes in verses 5 and 6 here is from Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 and 12 where it reads in the King James Version, My son, Despise not the chastening of Yahweh, neither be weary of his correction. For whom Yahweh loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. However, Paul follows the Septuagint, where the final clause of the passage differs significantly. He scourges every son whom he receives. Then Paul asks, rather rhetorically, You endure discipline. As sons, Yahweh engages with you. For what is a son whom a father does not discipline? And as it says in Proverbs chapter 13, He that spares the rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. Or I guess that should be updated to chastens him at times, or even chastens him frequently.
And again, in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, speaking to the children of Israel collectively, Yahweh says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities. And Paul goes on to say in verse 8, But if you are without discipline, of which you have all become partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. And the Greek word for bastard here is nathus. Strong's number 3541. Liddell and Scott defined the word nathus to mean a bastard, base-born. For example, i.e. means, for example, basically. Born of a slave or concubine, opposed to Ganesius. At Athens, the child of a citizen father and an alien mother of animals, cross-bred, generally spurious, counterfeit, or suppositious, suppositious, not suppositious, suppositious, substituted for the real thing, not genuine, is what that means. Since the antonym of Nathus is Ganesius, which appears in Paul's writings on four occasions, it will serve us to see the definition of that word as well from the Dellen Scott. We will better understand that a Nathus is a racial bastard once we see the definition for Ganesius. The word Ganesius is derived from the word genos. Liddell and Scott define Ganesius as belonging to the race, lawfully begotten, born in wedlock, and of course, proper Adamic marriage is defined in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam found that his wife was flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. If your wife's not, flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone, then you're not married. Rather, you're committing fornication. The word Ganesius is derived from the word genos, which according to that same source, Liddell and Scott, means race, stock, or family. So a person who is Ganesius is an authentic member of a particular race, and one who is Nathus is spurious and does not actually belong to the race because every bastard is actually a, 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 an example of a third kind, a person of a third kind, somebody who's a race of a third kind if they reproduce, somebody who's part of one race and part of another is a third kind that Yahweh God did not create because we can't blame God for our sin. A Nathus is therefore a bastard or someone not belonging to the same Adamic race as the children of Israel. You're either a son or you're a bastard. And Paul's attitude here and this is important to notice. Paul's attitude here also reveals for us his view of all of the Old Testament saints whom he has extolled throughout chapter 11. If Paul despises and excludes bastards, 
we cannot imagine that he contradicted himself in his interpretations of Scripture. And if Paul informs us, as he does later in his chapter, that Esau was a fornicator and a profane man, for which reason he lost his birthright, once we realize that the sin of Esau was his race-mixing, we cannot imagine that Paul had hypocritically judged Esau by different standards than he judged the rest of these Old Testament saints. Therefore, Paul's perspective throughout these chapters proves the following about the Old Testament figures which he has mentioned. That the wife of Joseph was a woman of suitable Adamic lineage, since Jacob blessed his sons. Paul cited this blessing, and Jacob understood why Esau was rejected by his parents, as we shall see discussing the later half of this chapter of Hebrews. It also proves that Moses' wife was an Adamic Israelite, which the Midianites were, as he was not a fornicator like Esau. Paul would not loud one fornicator and condemn another. This proves that Rahab was not a common whore, even though she was called a porne in the Septuagint, as well as by the apostles. We have seen that the word could very well have been used to describe an innkeeper who in a pagan city naturally had common whores lodging in her inn. At worst, Rahab was apparently what we may call a madam today. This also proves that Rahab could not have been a Canaanite, since Esau is labeled a fornicator because he had taken wives of the Canaanites, while Rahab was extolled by Paul for her faith. So Paul could not have believed that Rahab was a Canaanite. Otherwise, he could not have accused Esau of being a profane man and a fornicator. And bastards wouldn't matter. This also proves that Jephthah could not have been a bastard by biblical standards, even if his mother was a whore, since she was of the Israelite race, and he was also extolled for his faith. This also proves that Samson could not have been a fornicator, as his Philistine wife was also of the race of Adam, and he likewise was extolled for his faith. All of those heresies concerning these people, which are repeated by Judeo-Christian denominational whores, real whores, on a daily basis, all of these heresies, which Paul disproves here, are promoted for one reason, to convince people to accept bastards. Christians should never accept bastards. They should only accept sons and daughters. Furthermore, there would certainly be no point to Paul's statement in chapter 11 that the faith of these people may be encampments of the aliens give way if any of them were aliens or had been married to aliens. It may also be evident that Cain was a bastard since Paul did not find him to be accredited. All of the fools who attempt to find mercy for bastards in scripture are themselves denying scripture. 
Even in the Revelation, in chapter 2, Yahshua Christ himself said that he punishes fornicators by killing the children of fornicators, who are certainly bastards. Yahshua said that he gave Jezebel room to repent of her fornication, and because she would not repent, he would kill her children. He wouldn't kill her. He said he would kill her children with death. Can't get more dead than that. But here, Paul has also shown us that only two types of so-called people are considered in Scripture, sons and bastards. And of these, only sons are accepted. As the Apostle John had said in his first epistle, ostensibly speaking only to the children of Israel, in 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from of Yahweh and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. Speaking of the punishment of the children of Israel, it is written in Jeremiah chapter 30, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. This admonition is repeated in Jeremiah chapter 46. Fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee to make a full end of all the nations where I have driven thee. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure, yet I will not leave thee wholly unpunished. One is either a son, one of the children of Israel suffering chastisement for these ancient sins of the nation, or one is a bastard, and one's fate is with all of those of whom Yahweh will make a full end. Never in Scripture are there any third parties or any neutral parties which are mentioned. One is a son or a bastard, a wheat or a tare, a sheep or a goat, a good fish or a bad fish a fig or a thorn, a grape or a thistle. We may repeat many parables which substantiate these same concepts. However, here we will repeat only a couple, starting with the parable of the net from Matthew chapter 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, that word kind being the word genos or race which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. The sons, and the sons go into the vessels, and the bad, the bastards get cast away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth, and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth." Today we have this very circumstance wherein any of the nations where Israel is scattered nations which we are expecting to see the full end of a dragnet would indeed take up so-called people of every kind or race as the Greek word in which Christ had used is genos. The good kind or race must be the sons of which Paul speaks here and they are all gathered in vessels and preserved. None of the good kind is, being, is seen being thrown into fire. 
But of every race, there is only one other kind, the bad kind. And none of them are thrown back into the sea. Rather, all of the other kind, all of the bad kind are thrown into the fire without exception. Many sophistic interpretations have been given in regards to the parable of the sheep and the goats, even by supposed identity Christians. Here we will offer some comments of the parable, which is found in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. Now nations in scripture are people groups, people groups of particular ethnicity particular distinct ethnicity and all nations are gathered before the Son of Man when he comes in his glory and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he shall set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left now shepherds separate sheep from goats by sight they separate them by kind or by race. Shepherds do not separate sheep from goats by asking each of them whether they were naughty or nice. Santa Claus does that, not shepherds. And all of these universalists in Christian identity may as well believe in Santa Claus because they sure as hell don't believe in Jesus. The sheep and the goats can only correlate to sons or bastards, which in the Bible is those who are authentically of the Adamic race and those who are not. The fact that all nations are gathered, just as in the parable of the net, we see that nobody is excluded. Furthermore, the interpretation has to be consistent with that of the parable of the net, as the plain word of the prophecies we have seen concerning the punishment of Israel and the nations in Jeremiah, also has to be consistent with this interpretation. If your interpretation of the parable of the sheep and the goats is inconsistent with your interpretation of the parable of the net, or if it's inconsistent with the plain words in Jeremiah 30, verse 11, or in Jeremiah 46, verse 28, you have a problem. You're denying some aspect of Scripture and twisting it for your own agenda. Your interpretations must be consistent. And if you don't like that, go read Obadiah verses 15 and 16. You'll see the same thing that you see here and in Jeremiah 30:11. The next verse of the parable of the sheep and the goats, verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father. There's no interruption to take some of them out and put them with the goats, right? Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when we saw thee, and hungered, and fed thee, when did we see thee, and hunger, and feed thee, or thirsty, and give thee drink? And when saw we thee a stranger, 
when did we see you as a stranger and took you in, or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and came unto you? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, you have done it to me. Now, there is an element of judgment based upon behavior. But the sheep are judged by how they treated the sheep, and we do not see any of the sheep being tossed into the fire. They are treated as a group. Then in verse 31, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We'll get back to that statement in a moment. Depart from me, ye cursed. All of the goats, separated by race, separated on sight like a shepherd does, all of the goats go into the fire. There's no interruption to try to convert good goats or bad good goats into sheep. <laughs> like there was no interruption to try to throw sheep into the fire. There's no interruption to try to make room for these goats in the kingdom of God. For I was hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see thee hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, Verily, saying, Verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. Notice that the goats are judged not according to how they treated other goats, but according to how they had treated the sheep. Yahshua told the sheep, And as much as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then he told the goats, And as much as ye did it not to one of the least of these, meaning the sheep, ye did it not to me. Being judged by how they have treated the sheep, the goats did not stand a chance in hell of ever getting to heaven. Evidently, none of the goats are preserved as none of them are invited to cross sides. They are judged as nations for their race and not as individuals. Note that they also had the same fate as the devil and his angels. Therefore, since they had the same fate as the devil and his angels, they must have the same beginnings with the devil and his angels. <coughs> they are not from of God. Rather, <coughs> they are the flood from the mouth of the serpent. They are branches on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which were destined for the fire from the very beginning. For that reason, the Apostle Peter referred to non-Israelites as evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. <coughs> Unless one is a son, then one is a bastard, and there is no other choice. Finally, the parables conclude by saying... And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, meaning the goats, 
all the goats, no exceptions. But the righteous, meaning all the sheep, no exceptions, into eternal life. All of the seed of the children of Israel promised justification by Yahweh God on account of his promises to the fathers. <coughs> I'm sorry. Not from works, lest anyone should boast, as Paul explained in Ephesians. You're not going to get an attaboy just because you believe. That doesn't get you your salvation. Perhaps spending your life serving your brethren gets you treasure stored up in heaven. That's a separate issue entirely. Paul explained in Ephesians that, For by grace ye are saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. For that same reason, the Apostle John said in his first epistle, Each who has been born from of Yahweh does not create wrongdoing, because his seed abides in him, and he is not able to do wrong, because from of Yahweh he has been born. It is not that man does not sin, as Paul had said that all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. Rather, it is that Yahweh promised Israel that he would forgive their sins, as it says in 1 John chapter 2, My children, I write these things to you in order that you do not do wrong. And if one should do wrong, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Yahshua Christ, and he is a propitiation on behalf of our sins. So, if your Adamic seed is in you, you will not be condemned by God. It's that simple. You're a son and not a bastard. Created in Christ Jesus, if indeed we were created in him, then we were created in Genesis, and we are sons and not bastards. And everyone who is not a son must therefore be a bastard. Those who argue against the simple concepts so clearly expressed in these scriptures can only be bastards themselves. We are hated for this message, but we will never cease from announcing it because it is the gospel of Christ. And that will be a topic of tomorrow's program. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.